Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about running D&D and other RPGs for kids. A great way to spend time with your family now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. Um, this has been a pretty hectic week so far. Uh, kids are back to school, so it's the uh, time and things. Hey, Robert, this is Tim Shorts from Gothridge Manor. Thank you very much for the shout-out. Uh, I think why I'm so uh, comfortable with failure, because I do it all the time when I play, because my role-playing, or my rolling, is infamous with being poor. I wish it was an exaggeration, but it's not. I just, I'm just horrible at rolling. But uh, oftentimes I find when I am running a game that the failures are sometimes much more interesting than I... Uh, was considering what the success would be. And sometimes it's it's not so much a, it, like a win, but how you win. Like there's always you you were successful, but, or you you lost, but, you know, there's, there's like varying degrees of that that can be played. And it's great that you're playing with the kids. That's what I, I used to do that years ago and really enjoyed it. So uh, take care and keep, keep casting, man. Love it. Yeah, so thanks for that, Tim. Um, I like calling into people's uh, podcasts when I can, but Anchor only allows you one minute to call in, um, and you can leave more than one message. But it's you know it starts to get a bit cumbersome. So sometimes if if uh, somebody's podcast like if it, if it makes me think of, of like have a lot of comments, you know, if it, if it uh, kind of inspires me to have a whole topic, then instead of, instead of phoning in and trying to abbreviate my thoughts, I'll just put it in a podcast where I can talk for as long as I want. So that's what I kind of did about the uh, failing is fun thing. Um, it's interesting, Tim, the way that you describe your dice rolling. It, it actually put me in mind of, um, of Will Wheaton and the what he calls the Wheaton dice curse, which is basically um, no matter what game he's playing or what dice he's rolling, he will roll terribly. Not like not always the minimum, but just really, really badly. Um, you wouldn't you wouldn't think. I mean, basically, dice. You know, they generate random numbers. They're the my favorite review for a set of dice is a long time ago. I was shopping for some dice on Amazon, and I decided to read a review. And the top review for the, it was just a standard D twenty set. You know, D four up through D twenty with the uh, percentile dice. And the 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 top review said, "These are dice. They generate random numbers between one and twenty. If you want to generate random numbers between one and twenty, buy these dice." Because, you know, there's no, nobody gets better or worse at rolling polyhedral dice. You just have better or worse luck. So realistically, no person can consistently roll less than 10 on a d20, you know. Statistically, you're going to have to roll high sometimes. But there is video evidence that the Wheaton dice curse is real, Um he guest starred on on Critical Role a long, long time ago, quite early in the um, in the first campaign. And he sat there. I think he was. I think it was two episodes he was in. 
but he sat there and never rolled higher than a 10 or something like that. It was, it was abysmal. Um, it, it, it ended up becoming a joke where people would just laugh every time he had to roll dice because he just couldn't. He couldn't do it. And then they took a break. They take their, their customary break. And, of course, you know, it, it's streamed on Twitch, so it's live. So you see him sitting there, and he's practicing rolling his D20. And when, it, when, the, when it's not in context, when he doesn't have to be playing the game, you know, yeah, see, it can roll higher than 10. It is possible. It's not like his dice were broken or something or unbalanced or something like that. But once actual play started again, he could not roll high. And further video evidence of the Wheaton Dice curse is, again, on, on Geek and Sundry, he was a player in a, a game of, uh, of Paranoia. And his first roll was something like an 18. But in Paranoia, you need to roll low. So at first, he was really happy. He's like, wow, I rolled an 18. Wait a, wait a minute. That's like rolling a 2 in Dungeons & Dragons. So the Wheaton Dice curse even knows what constitutes a bad roll. It can change according to the parameters of the game, and get him. I don't know what he did to piss the dice, the dice gods off, but for some reason, you know, there is video evidence that Will Wheaton cannot roll dice, that, that some mystical energy is, uh, is preventing him rolling well when he rolls dice in RPGs. Of course, even that is BS. He's just obviously coincidentally has some bad luck sometimes and statistically he will have to rule high sometimes um but thinking about that brought me got me thinking about um dice superstitions it's something that all gamers have we don't all have the same ones but all gamers have dice superstitions it's one of those things you know it's not in any rule in any core rule book that you have to develop some dice superstitions, but it should be just like there's there's no core rule book which says bring snacks to the game master's house, but you know you ought to. Everybody has dice superstitions, and uh, mine mine are pretty vanilla. I think um, one of them I stole from Mike Krahulik, which um, he uh, he outlined it on uh, one of the Acquisitions Incorporated games where basically whenever he's not rolling his dice, he sits them on the table with their max value facing up. As if you can train the dice, like, this is your natural state. You stop rolling when you hit this again, you know? As, as if always keeping your dice facing with their max value up will train them to rest that way so that they always, um, so that they always roll the highest value possible. So I do that, and I have... I have all my dice sets in nice rows, nice colorful rows, because I, we all have different colored dice, and they're all facing with their max value up. Um, does it work? Absolutely not. Um, I am just as likely to roll badly as I am to roll well, but I still do it. It's it's one of my things. Um, another thing I think is is probably pretty common is. After a certain number of consecutive poor rolls, a die a die goes back in the bag, and you substitute it for another one, as if that die is going to consistently roll poorly the whole evening. When, for all you know, the next time it was going to be a natural twenty, because it is all just random probability. But there's something about it, like 
everybody probably has a different number. For me, it's, it's like a three maximum, like, um, three bad rules in a row. You're out of here. You know, you're, you're taking the bench and I'm going to get another die out. But yeah, there's something, there's something psychological about that. When it's, when you're at the table playing the game, a certain number of bad rules in a row, you put that die away and you get another one out. Um, and maybe, maybe next session, the dice can come out of jail and stuff. And I mean, it's obviously so common that some people have started making dice jails as novelty products. Um, it's one of these things that I would never spend any money on. Um, there's some, there's nothing wrong with spending money on your hobby. You know, you got to think if, if my hobby was playing golf, what would that cost me? You know, um, so there's nothing wrong with spending a little bit of money on RPGs if that's what you really like. But there are some things that are so expensive that I just cannot get my head around dropping that kind of cash. Even if I had it, you know, a lot of the times I don't actually have the cash to spend. Um, like you, there's, there's a wormwood, um, wooden GM screens, which are absolutely beautiful. But I think the cheapest possible options, like the cheapest wood, getting a very basic screen, it's still like $200 and that's without shipping. And if, if you want one of the nicer woods, well, the sky's the limit. I like black, so they do an ebony one. Ebony's a very expensive wood. I think it was something like $2,800 to get a GM screen made of ebony. And it's like, it's beautiful, but who the hell's going to drop $3,000 on a GM screen? So, you know, when there's somebody out there making custom wooden dice jails, as a thing for you to lug to the gaming table and put your dice in when they've had one too many bad rolls. That's the kind of novelty that I just feel like I don't need to be putting my money back that, you know, it works just as well to just put your dice back in the dice bag. Um, but those are some things that, uh, came to my mind, um, thinking about rolling, like having a tendency to roll badly because really, it all it ought to be random chance each time, but sometimes it can really feel like, like you can't, like you literally cannot roll high. It's not so bad when you're running the game because the the players then don't take as much damage, and they probably feel like, hey, this is great, we're surviving. You know, I think uh, actually to bring back Will Wheaton, he said that when he runs games, he, his players think he's going easy on them. And he's like, I'm really not. He's trying to hit them. He just can't roll high enough to hit them. Oh, well, so those are some rambling thoughts um, from that message. But uh, thanks again, Tim. And uh, I'm really enjoying your podcast, too. And so um, coming up now, then I have a, a couple of messages from Colin Green of Spike Pit. Uh, so let's hear from Colin. Hi, Robert. It's Colin. Thanks for calling in, mate. Um, really enjoying your show and listening to your reviews. Very in-depth, very helpful. I think I'm going to pick up that Kids on Bikes as soon as I get uh, a bit of space in the brain. I have another question for you. I wondered if you'd played um, Bubblegum Shoe. All out of... No, what is it? All out of Bubblegum. The... Um, Evil hat spin on the gumshoe system. 
it's another one of these sort of um, teenage mystery type things have gone gone wrong in town RPGs. And uh, just uh, interested, yeah, if you have any experience of them, what your thoughts are, mate. Anyway, take it easy. Look forward to hearing from you soon. Bye. Hi, Robert. Yeah, me again, Colin. Um, my earlier message, I realised I'd left off a few of the points I'd wanted to mention, um, in particular about kids on bikes. So, if I may, I thought I'd take the liberty of sending another message. Yeah, the artwork in Kids on Bikes, um, that hasn't really been mentioned uh, between us in particular, I'm guessing, and in your review, I don't recall it. Um, I thought that was mind-blowing, Re- really excellent artwork, really evocative in a, a kind of a print sort of style, I guess. And um, yeah, I, the other thing that swung me was the fact that it's such a different system Whereas the Dark Places and Demigorgons is, you know, very good if you want that easy entry. So, yeah, that was it, mate. Catch you later. Yeah, so uh, thanks for that, Colin. Um, Yeah, you know, um, guilty as charged about the artwork. That is a a notorious and glaring error um, in the the reviews that I've done so far. it's something I'm aware of that I, that I'm not good at. So, what I what I think the I think the case is that so I'm I'm not an artist myself. I have zero talent for anything, um, you know, drawing, crafting, painting, anything like that. So I know it's a it's a it's an area I don't feel confident in, and I also don't feel competent to critique it. I mean, I know what I like but I can't describe why I like it. I don't have the vocabulary to uh, critique it. And by contrast, I'm, you know, in my professional life, I'm a writer, I'm an editor, I'm a linguist. So I feel very competent critiquing text, but uh, I, I don't have that same confidence and competence critiquing artwork. Um, probably the most sophisticated I could go with. I could tell you that I like something, or that it reminds me of something. Um, it's probably something I, I should work on, knowing that it's um, a weak spot. I can work on it and attempt to improve it, but I'll probably never be a great art critic. Um, but yeah, the uh, as you say, the kids on bikes artwork in all the all across the uh, the versions, so the Ashcan free version and the complete rules have this very um, distinctive um, style of artwork. It it reminds me personally of um, comic books of a certain era. Um, so there, there's there's a there's a style of of comic book art where it looked more realistic than say it did in the fifties. If you if like I remember the Batman comics from the eighties. Where they tried to give things kind of an edgier and more realistic look, and that was a very different style of artwork than you had in like the very early Batman uh, comic books from you know 1939 onward, <clears throat> or the 50s or something. It was less cartoonish. Um, the colors, though, the color palette in Kids on Bikes is somewhat muted. 
And uh, whereas, you know, even even in the gritty era of Batman, um, they still used a lot of colors. And remember, comic book Batman always had the the blue cape. So there was color involved in that. So that's a hallmark of, uh, of traditional comic books com- or of superhero comic books. So there's, there's something muted about the palette, the color palette um, in the Kids on Bikes artwork that gives it somewhat a kind of an eerie feel as well. Um, I should probably uh, um, just bear that in mind the next time I'm reviewing uh, an RPG product to remember to at least mention the artwork because that actually is a very important part of a lot of RPG products. I mean, when you think of, say, when you think of um, the the Mensa Red Box, in addition to like the rules themselves or the the adventure that comes in the red box, you also think of the Frank Menser um, cover on that box. And I actually have that on a t-shirt. I have a big red t-shirt with the Menser basic red box on it. And, and it says Dungeons and Dragons in the original font. I also have one for the BX, for the Mold, Moldvay basic. Um <clears throat> Red box because I'm actually I prefer the Moldvay basic rule set to to Menser, um, and I don't know if it's because I like the Moldvay basic rules better, but I I am equally if not slightly more fond of the original of the the Moldvay basic artwork um, than the than the the iconic red dragon you know Frank Menser. Um, box like i said i don't know if it's an association thing like i when i see that picture i know it's moldvay basic the other thing i like is that so bx is called bx because it only ever came out in B, basic and expert and i love how on the the expert box the cover shows a wizard obviously scrying and he what he sees is the basic box cover in miniature and I love the impression that creates. It's like when you do the basic levels one through three, you think you have, you know, you're going through an adventure and you think, oh, wow, this is really, this is getting really heavy, you know. And then the machinations of the of the villains that you'll encounter when you go into the expert level are so insidious that whatever you faced in levels one through three, that's just a ploy. There's somebody even bigger pulling the strings that you'll have to eventually work your way up to facing. I really, uh, I really love the idea um, that those two pieces of art kind of convey, and the the progression that that your hero will go through, going from levels one all the way up to fourteen. That you'll, whatever you thought you faced at level three. You'll you'll meet the person pulling the strings by the time you reach level fourteen and and have to challenge them. So, okay. uh, so those are two reasons why I actually prefer the uh, the Moldvay basic um, artwork. And then you know the the internal artwork, say in the uh, first edition core rule sets. You know that's that's very distinctive. It's something that people like to emulate when they're making OSR products, you know, to, to kind of recapture that feel. So yeah, it's definitely worth commenting on art and it's something I'll probably just have to work to improve. 
Um, as for the uh, the mechanics, yeah, it, it is a the kids on bikes mechanics are definitely. Um, well, they're not unique <laughs> to me because I know of several other games that actually use a very similar dice mechanic where you just assign a different die to each um, ability stat, each ability score, and the higher the dice, the better you are. Um, I actually recently asked on their Facebook page whether, there w- whether they knew of a name for that, that, that type of system, the way that the D20 system is called the D20 system. And uh, it sparked quite a com- like quite a conversation. The answer is no, there is no distinct name for it, although they are aware of any number of other games that do use a similar mechanic. Um, the, the two front runner, well, the two ones that I'm most familiar with are obviously Kids on Bikes and um, Tales of Equestria, the My Little Pony game. And they both have an exploding dice mechanic as well so when you're not when you're not always rolling a d20 because you you roll whatever die is you have for that stat you, you can't have the natural 20 critical hit rule but they want something similar they want some kind of reward for rolling max and both games call this an exploding roll the uh the official name in my little pony is the exploding hoof to tie it into the uh equestrian theme um they they're the same general idea where when you roll max value on on a given die you get to roll more you get to roll again they vary slightly in my little pony if you if you roll max value on your die you get to roll the next die up and you can keep doing that all the way to d20 if you happen to keep rolling max. So if you if your stat is a D6 and you roll a 6, you get to now roll a D8. If you roll an 8, you get to roll a D10. And if this keeps happening, you can get all the way up to D20. Um, that's where you stop because you can't go higher than that. When that's done, you pick the highest overall roll. And that's your roll. You don't get to add them together. Also, you have to stop once you've exceeded the difficulty task, like the, the difficult, the, the target number you were trying to hit. Um, so, so you, you can't like, you can't roll a 20 on a, on a difficulty, uh, 10, because before you reach the 20, you would probably have got 10 or higher. So you keep that, you keep whatever the, whatever the first score was that beat the difficulty level. Um, it's slightly different in kids on bikes where, um, I'm doing this from memory. I should probably just look the PDF up, but I'm in my kitchen hanging up laundry, so I'm not going to do that. But I believe that what it is, is that when you roll max, you roll again and add them together. So that way, and, and that, that, uh, it's a lot simpler, but its purpose is just to give you a chance at, making a difficulty in a stat where you don't have a high enough die to reach that difficulty. So if, if the task, you know, if the difficulty level is something like seven and you only have a D six, you've got a one in six chance of exploding and then you'll hit it because if you roll six, you roll again, even if you roll a one, you'll actually make that. So you can, you can, um, the way I run the game is I do inform people of the of the the target number before they roll because I feel like what what that represents in game is 
let's say let's say you were trying to jump across i don't know two buildings that were close to each other i feel like in real life you would know you would look at that distance and know whether you felt confident that you could clear it so that's why I, that's why i tell them before when they want to do something and they're going to have to roll for it i tell them the number and what stat they're going to use and they can look there then they can look down and make an informed decision and I feel like that decision emulates the real life decision of looking at what you what <laughs> what the situation is and whether you think you can you can uh, actually do what you have to do. So, yeah, if if uh, going back to this hypothetical jump. So I would say that this is probably I would allow you to either use flight or brawn, because I think it would either be down to your raw athletic strength or possibly your speed and nimbleness. Um, and let's say that that difficulty, like the, the buildings are close together, but not that close. So it is seven. And let's say that you had a D4 in one of those stats and a D6 in the other one. And you felt that it was worth that one in six shot of... <laughs> Rolling your D6, hoping for max so that you could explode and then make it. Um, I think in-game this would actually be a bad decision because there's a 5 and 6 chance that you will miss it and fall and, you know, probably die. Otherwise, why would you bother jumping if it wasn't a lethal distance that you would have to fall and there, you wouldn't even be thinking about jumping? But that's a kind of a, an idea of how you might use the exploding dice uh, mechanic in play. And how knowing the possibility of the exploding dice mechanic might inform your decision. Um, it probably makes rolling when you've only got a d4 and the difficulty isn't that high a little bit, you know, more attractive because you've got a 25% chance that the roll will explode. So, and if you're rolling a d20, well, you know, you probably already are capable of hitting that, whatever the DC is. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend um, Kids on Bikes as a, um, it's a different mechanic. It's a pretty simple and intuitive mechanic. One of the things that um, I commented on the Facebook page is that it, the way that the stats and the dice work in, in uh, Kids on Bikes, I feel like you, you have to explain that once. And the players get it, and you don't have to explain it again. Whereas the D20 system in principle should be really easy. Roll a D20 and roll high. But it's the bonuses that the system implies or depends upon that, that gets um, complicated. And I'm sure anybody who plays 5th edition sees this whenever you have new players. Like the, the newer they are, the more frequently you have to remember or remind them what they get to add to uh, to any given role, even if it's on their character sheet. For instance, like be, one of the things that I find for, that, that trips new players up is because the saving throws in 5th edition are named after the ability scores, they forget that they're proficient in two of the, uh, of the five ability scores. So you say, make a strength saving throw, and they roll, and they only add their strength bonus but not their proficiency bonus. If it's a fighter or a barbarian or something like that, it's easy to do because you got your saving throws in that little box, you know, and 
the name of it, you know, doesn't necessarily, I mean, at least in third edition, when they called it, you know, uh, fortitude and reflex and will, then at least you would, you would say, I'm going to look on my sheet and find where it says reflex or, or will or fortitude. Um, so in, in principle, they would probably thought they were making things simpler, but I, I find that it does trip new players up and, you know, um, you add your proficiency bonus as well as your ability score bonus to the attack roll, but not to the damage. But you do add your ability score bonus to the damage, but not if you're making an offhand attack. Um, and then sometimes people forget whether when you're making an offhand attack, what are you taking away? Is it the ability score or the proficiency? And that makes a big difference because you know you do less damage with your if you take away the ability score to the damage it makes you less likely to or makes you just as likely to hit but you do less damage which is technically better because it's extra damage anyway <clears throat> unless you didn't hit with your main hand and if you take off your proficiency bonus then you'll do the same amount of damage if you do hit but you're less likely to hit so who cares how much extra damage you know it doesn't matter how much extra damage you you uh you get to inflict if you don't hit in the first place. So yeah, the the D20 system for all that it's streamlined is actually a little bit complicated. And it does have a lot of sticking points that you have to constantly remind new players about and I I don't have that experience when I'm running kids on bikes. It's just you just decide what what stat they're rolling and then they roll that die. And you tell them what number they need to hit and they can decide whether they want to actually continue with the action and roll forward or whether they want to think of something else to do. Easy as pie. So that's uh, quite a lot of rambling for this episode. Um, just a heads up, I've got a, uh, a new call in, which I'm going to save until my next episode. So uh, Mr. Hobbs, I'll be... Uh, answering that um the next time i record a podcast but thanks uh in advance for phoning in um and my my last subject of rambling is a thought i had or i've been i've been kind of mulling over uh for a, a week or two i uh i have a hard drive heaving with osr products you know uh, rule sets, uh, modules, um, you know, character and monster options and magic items. And, you know, just, I'm sure, you know, I'm not the only one. In fact, I, I know I'm not the only one who I'm always at drive through RPG and there's stuff in there. I get, I get email alerts for new OSR products. It's like, Oh, that looks good. Or there's content producers that I know and trust and I, I get all their stuff. Or it's on my wish list, and then anytime I buy something, I add a few things for my wish list. So I've got a lot of OSR stuff. Um, and it is kind of my intention to, I don't know, try my hand at publishing a module of my own. But, you know, most OSR stuff is independent, it's indie. And, you know, I'm. Professionally, I am an editor and a proofreader, um, among other things. So with my editor's eye, you know, I do, I do spot spelling errors. Uh, 
and uh, punctuation errors and grammatical errors and things like that. And I don't, I've been thinking that I would like to um, find a way to offer my services, you know, to uh, to people who are who are creating independent OSR products and they can't, you know, they don't have an editorial staff because they're not a real company. They're just somebody making the stuff for the love of, of the, for the love of the game, you know? Um, I just, I don't know. I feel like this is something I would like to do to kind of help people out. The problem is that, um, you know, how would I kind of go about it? You know, first of all, I'm only one person, so I can't like, I can't edit every single OSR product that ever comes out. There's just aren't enough hours in the day. Um, I do have, uh, you know, I do have to earn money sometimes. So there's that. And of course, by definition, most independent content producers aren't going to have a budget for editorial. Uh, you know, to contract another editor. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are they're just doing it themselves, but you cannot, it's, it's, it's literally impossible for you to effectively edit your own content. Like you cannot edit and proofread your own content. You have blinders on when it comes to stuff that you've written because you always know what you meant to write. Um, plus it's really boring to, to read your own prose, you know, you're like, I wrote it. I don't need to read it. But, you know, somebody else who approaches it cold, they're going to read it. And those uh, those little typos and things are going to loom a bit larger for them. And all the stuff that all the all the uh, products that I have, you know, the content is brilliant. You know, just just wall to wall, brilliant ideas, brilliant content and and it deserves to have the best possible presentation as well. The thing is, I just, I, I don't really know how to go about kind of doing this. You know, who do I start with? You know, how much time would I have reasonably to devote to, you know, becoming the kind of freelance editor for hire of the OSR? But it's something that I've been, I've been thinking about, you know. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll keep thinking about it and if something comes to mind, you know, I can... Uh, let you know how it develops, if I can get my head around a, a model or a system that might work. There are some producers who won't need it, you know, who they're, they're, their, company, their companies are big enough or they do have a budget or somebody they can turn to. And there are, you know, generic um, editorial like um, services that you can get through the internet. But here's the thing is that if you have a gaming product, I wonder if it would be helpful to have another gamer who is also an editor do it, you know, because you wouldn't have to explain how gaming works to me. I get it. You know, when you, when you put gamer speak in there, unless, unless you're really aiming at some, you know, attracting non gamers. So it needs to be understandable by people who aren't into gaming. Then, you know, you might want to go for a, a more general editor Although I could probably handle that too. I'm aware of what is gamer speak and what isn't. But if you know, if it's a product by gamers for gamers and you don't want to be supplying a brief to the person you contacted with a, a lot of glossary of terms and things like that, you know, it could be useful having somebody who's into games, who understands 
how RPGs work and we'll understand the concepts and stuff. I don't know. It's just something I was thinking about. Um, I mean, ideally it would be great if I could do it and make a little bit of money, but I mean, the, the market I'm going for probably doesn't have a lot of money to spend and that's fine. But I don't know, maybe even to just start with one project, like if there's one product that's coming up from a producer that I, that I'm already a fan of and just be like, well, let's try this. I'll edit this for free and we'll just see how it goes, you know, and, and maybe go from there something like that. I don't know. Cause I do a lot of freelance editing of stuff that's really dry and boring. And I read a lot of OSR material in my spare time. And I think I could be editing this and I would probably be having a lot more fun. I don't know. Just a thought. Anyways, that's enough rambling for this episode. Um, until next time, play well and let the dice roll where they may.